Today, my guest is Professor April Mill. I'll keep my introduction short to maximize our time with her. In the next 30 minutes or so, we'll talk about April as a person, Professor Neil as a thought leader and an esteemed scholar, and finally as a mentor to many PhD students and junior faculty. For the sake of time, I'll skip many of her accomplishments and give you a very quick snapshot. Professor Neil is the Vice President of Programs for the Eastern Finance Association. She is ranked in top 10% of SSRN authors for all-time downloads and for downloads in the past uh, last 12 months and top 10 list for multiple papers. She was nominated for Best Paper Awards at AIB Southeast Conference and Financial Management Association Conference. April is a consulting editor at JIBS and an associate editor at Global Finance Journal. She was a guest editor for two special issues at Journal of Corporate Finance and JIBS. April worked as a consultant for the Development Research Group at the World Bank in Washington, D.C. Thank you, April, for joining us. Thank you for having me. April, uh, what did you want to become when you were a child? Actually, believe it or not, I started out wanting to be an elementary education teacher and uh, went through all the coursework that was required for that degree. And as I was going along, one day, one of my professors was like talking about how little teachers make, you know, in K through 12 education and saying, you really need to make sure that you invest some money. And that day he introduced me to the idea of compound interest. And I remember that day vividly, I fell in love with finance and that was all she wrote. So I just decided I, that, and I did student teaching and I realized that I didn't want to teach two plus two for the rest of my life. <laughs> no offense to those teachers that do and are fulfilled by it, but I just knew it wasn't going to work for me. So I combined the love of finance with teaching older kids. And that's how I you know, decided to become a professor. And, and that was, once I knew that, it was easy. And where did you grow up? In Maryland. Okay. Yeah. And about IB or international, uh, can you remember the first moment of awareness between domestic versus foreign? Yeah. So, I mean, it might've been before this memory, but I was thinking about this before. So when I was in high school, um, my choir instructor was, I guess, plugged into the international scene. So she organized two things. The first was she had choirs and bands come from schools in different countries. And so one particular band was from Germany. And, you know, she would have us host the band members, you know, some of the families. And that was a wonderful experience. I mean, it was really impactful. I remember it vividly even today. And then she organized a trip to London, Wales with our choir. And so we went there and we performed a bunch of concerts and, um, and we stayed with host families. And it was, again, very impactful um, just to, you know, sort of learn about different cultures and different countries and just be aware that there's a lot more um, than what you are familiar with in your little part of the world. Interesting. And uh, something that is not on your CV that people might find interesting. Um, I mean, as it relates to my job, I think uh, something that most people don't know about me is I'm a bit of a news junkie. Um, I'm constantly reading and, and uh, you know, sort of tapping into different news sources um, and just very, very, very interested in all things current events. 
How long do you spend a day on reading news and reports? Uh, most of my waking hours besides, <laughs> besides, you know, my research, but it all kind of goes together. I mean, the, you know, current events and news and what's going on, um, that just sort of sets my research interest on fire. And I try to think about what things are relevant. Um, my sort of barometer for what's a good idea is, could I explain it to my parents who are not finance <laughs> academics? Um, could I explain it to them? And would they think it's interesting? And would they think it matters? Would they think it's worth my time to look into? And so that's my sort of rule of thumb. It hasn't, you know, led me astray yet. <laughs> okay. Um, well, if you stop doing what you're doing today, what's the second best career uh, path for you? Um, I know how this is going to sound, but um, honestly, I can't see any other career for me. I tell people all the time, I have the best job in the world. I love what I do. Um, it's like the old expression goes, if you do what you love, you never work another day of, of your life. And it is honestly, I don't see me ever retiring. So fair warning to Florida State. I, I don't. I, there, <laughs> there's no reason for me to retire. It gives me purpose. It, it satisfies curiosity. So if I, if you force me to make a decision, I would say something in research, but a university professor is just, it fits me like a glove. This is what I was meant to be. I know it. Interesting. Uh, about regrets, uh, do you, have you got any regrets? Um, I do. I, you know, I'm pretty proud of how far I've come, but if I had to do it all over again, I would make some changes. Um, I think when I first graduated, I actually had a, an A publication while I was still a student. And I had, I think, a false impression of how easy it was to publish. <laughs> um, and I, I didn't see how important it is to be affiliated with some very well-established people in your discipline. I think it matters a lot more than that young scholar was aware. Um, so that's probably a good way to put it in a nutshell. Um. What did you learn from your biggest mistake? That was probably <laughs> in my career. That was probably it. So I started, you know, aligning myself with some of those more well-established scholars. And I think it takes a while, especially if you don't hit five home runs coming out of the gate. But, um, you know, I, I've built on my successes and, you know, hopefully get bigger and bigger and bigger. And I'm still working on it. I mean, it's, it's a never ending journey for me, but in a happy way, it's not a sort of tortured thing. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's, you know, the more successes I get, the more I want. And, you know, it just lets me reach to that next higher goal. Uh, what are you most passionate about? Research, <laughs> just, you know, working on things that matter. I mean, the idea in academia that we can, you know, potentially make an impact on the world. We can potentially, you know, sort of unearth things that have never really been thought of or tested or, you know, dreamed about, or dare we dream, make the world a better place, you know, in some 
tiny way. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's kind of uh, invigorating to think that you can actually leave your mark, you know, on the world forever. It's, it's a wonderful idea. So that's what I'm passionate about. I think trying to solve some of the problems or, you know, concerns that exist. Uh, thank you. Uh, April, you mentioned you wanted to explain your research to your parents and you were successful. <laughs> I wasn't. Uh, so, so let's say you're stranded in a small village. Uh, so there are locals. They don't read your work regularly. And there are also my parents there. <laughs> uh, how do you explain your research to people uh, who don't read academic work? And why, why is your research important? Yeah, so I mean, a lot of my ideas, as I alluded to before, are sort of born out of current events or the situations that are going on. And so I think automatically, now assuming these people have access to current events, if they don't, then I may not be able to explain it to them. But, you know, I can, I have talked to total strangers about my research because, you know, like I, I typically look at the intersection between law and finance and politics. And so, any of the current events that are, you know, in that nexus, usually people are going to be aware of. And, you know, I try to answer things in, in a sort of a political neutral way, but things that most people are actually interested in. So it's usually something that I try to build on uh, the explanation I try to build on based on what I think they're familiar with. Um, but in general, it's it's like what I said, the intersection between law, finance, and politics is probably my my sort of passion. And a lot of that actually is in an international setting, which is is why I'm talking to you. Um, April, let's say a patient comes to you and says, I'm thinking about uh, writing a dissertation, but you know, I'm having difficulty finding interesting uh, ideas. Uh, can you give a couple of uh, ideas for students who are going to be writing on these intersection points, uh, what are the next big questions in your opinion uh, for the field? Well, I mean, I see a lot of things happening around the world. You know, I think the political climate is changing around the world. I think the cultural climate is changing around the world. I think there's a shift um, toward protectionism and against, uh, away from globalism. And all of those things have impacts on a lot of the things that have been looked at um, in the past. Additionally, you know, COVID, I mean, there are papers popping up every single day. I'm, I'm writing two papers on COVID, but there are any number of papers that could pop up from that. I mean, we are re-examining, my, my co-authors and I are re-examining the whether globalization for a multinational corporation is, you know, purely a positive thing or whether there are some limitations, liabilities, if you will, of the idea. And COVID has actually unearthed some of those potential limitations, you know, when you're thinking about a multinational corporation versus a domestic only corporation, you know, I think most people think that that is a purely positive thing. Well, COVID has, has, you know, unearthed the idea that, you know, with regard to supply chain, for example, it can be a limitation, it can be a problem. 
Um, you have lots of technology things popping up. You know, you have the the colonial pipeline thing that happened. You've got hacking. So any of those sort of current, again, current events, current, I tell my PhD students, become a news junkie. Read the Wall Street Journal every single day. Read, you know, reputable sources, not, you know, politically biased ones that will, you know, keep you up to date on what's going on around the world. And then ask yourself, which of these, if any, are, you know, something that I can test in an empirical setting, something that might be worthwhile pursuing, something that is new. Um, COVID obviously was excellent there because the last pandemic we had was the Spanish flu, right? So, I mean, these things just, they're, they're sort of organic. They just pop up and you just have to be paying attention. Mm -hmm. And um, about investments, uh, about investments, uh, Chinese investments, Indian investments in Africa, uh, what is your prediction? What is your foresight on how that uh, initiative is going to be, infrastructure initiative is going to be um, taking shape in the future? I think it's interesting and I think it has the potential to change world order, depending on how things, you know, sort of pan out there. I think it's something that the United States should be paying attention to um, and thinking about and, you know, planning for um, and sort of getting in the game as well. So, you know, it's, I think it's too early to tell, but I think it's something that could have a major impact. April, I asked this question to a couple of people before. Uh, I want to ask you the same thing about the modern monetary theory or the modern economic theory. There's nothing a real name for it yet, but uh, basic logic is governments who can't uh, print money can print money and they don't have to go into any kind of bankruptcy as long as they keep printing money. So they uh, flood the markets uh, with, with with cash. Is this a sustainable model? No. <laughs> so what's, what's going to happen? I'm really curious about what's, what's the future? I mean, that's a really good question. I don't know that I can predict what the future will bring, but I think, you know, cryptocurrency is, is a game changer. I mean, I'm personally not um, somebody that is jumping to invest in it, but I'm, I tend to be a little cautious. Um, but I know a lot of my colleagues that have, um, you know, as far as the printing of money, I mean, that just leads to inflation. And if you have hyperinflation, you know, Argentina back in the early 2000s had hyperinflation. I mean, that leads to a currency crisis and that, I mean, that causes all kinds of economic problems. Um, so any country that's going to try to do that, it's, it's going to lead to economic pain for sure. Um, to the, you know, I've heard lots of, my mother actually asked me about, you know, are we going to have one currency globally? I don't foresee that happening. I just don't, not in our lifetime anyway. I, I think the experiment that is the Euro um, teaches a lot of things and, you know, I tell my students every semester, I teach international, um, you know, in the beginning, there was a honeymoon period, you know, everything was hunky dory, all the economies were kind of on the same plane, you know, you had to be in the beginning, you had to get sort of that 
you know, the, the physical from the economic doctor and make sure that, you know, there's no sort of major problems brewing. You're all in the same level as far as, you know, your economic um, stability, et cetera. And so everything was wonderful. But then, you know, actually the U.S. sort of <laughs> had a role to play there. We had the, the global recession. We started the global recession and, you know, we started to see some economic pains in Europe. And when you have individual countries like Greece that fall into crisis, but other countries like Germany that were in great shape, what do you do? You've got one monetary policy because you've got one currency. So what do you do? You know, a country like the United States, when we have a, a, a problem, the Fed responds by either, you know, if you have, um, you know, the economy is floundering, you can reduce interest rates to the extent that there's room to do so. And if you are having signs of inflation, typically they'll raise the interest rates. Well, we're one currency, one country. So we have the freedom to do that. When you have, a, a, you know, a group of countries that have one currency, like with the Eurozone, then if you have one country that's in trouble, then you have the situation where Germany had to bail out Greece and it becomes an issue, you know, and it's an ongoing thing. You know, as long as everybody's on the same page with their economic status, you're fine. There's no problem. But the minute you're not, you got big problems because there's not a lot you can do. You got fiscal policy and, and monetary policy. Well, monetary policy is not your own anymore when you agree to that situation. And fiscal policy is taxation and government spending. There's only so much you can do with that. And it's really unpopular if you want to raise taxes on everyone. So um, it's it's a tough situation. And you've already had one, one country that exited, right? So um, I mean, I think we should learn from that. Whether we do or not is a different question, but I think we should learn from that. Um, I think there are some countries that maybe wish, you know, unofficially that they hadn't signed on to that because it's it's causing some issues that they didn't foresee um, or it's a little more painful than they thought it would be in, you know, sort of the rough times. And if we were to go to a one currency system, that's where we would land eventually at some point. And so I personally think that is not a place that we should strive to be. Thank you. Uh, April, about uh, mentoring and advice, uh, is there one thing that you wish you had known uh, when you were starting out, which would save so much uh, time, pain, and agony, uh, and you know, start you off in a, well, actually at an AA publication, but um, is there something that they should know uh, at the early, early, early times in their program? Yeah, so I think I'll go back to what one of the things I said before, and that is make sure that you network. I think networking is possibly the most important thing that you need to do. Maybe not the most, but it's up there for sure in the top five, definitely. Um, and it's painful at first because you don't know anybody. Uh, except for the true extroverts, they probably don't care. But the rest of us <laughs> that aren't truly extroverted, it's a little painful at first, but it gets better. And, you know, I think you should, I tell my students all the time, you want to shoot for at least three papers completely finished out of the gate, because 
you are going to find that the time is extremely short between graduation and when you have to put your notebook in for tenure. So the more you can get done before you graduate, the better. Um, I also tell my students, you want to try to um, go to a place that is set up to help you with your research goals. But, you know, all that said, being, you know, more true to who I am as an advisor, I, I'm advising a, a student right now that's going to be on the market soon. And I had a conversation with him uh, basically saying, look, you are in this program to have choices, to be able to choose a place to work where you're going to be happy. And in the end, that's what matters. It's, you know, for some people, research is not their, it's not their, their jam, you know, it's not what brings them joy. And if that doesn't bring them joy, they shouldn't go to a place where that is the, you know, the most important thing they got to find their fit. You know, it's a fit both ways. It's not just a fit for the university that's hiring them. It's a fit for the person too, because you're going to spend, I mean, I've been here at Florida state for 16 years. So, you know, it's important that you find a fit. Um, but yeah, I think they just need to be true to themselves, figure out what is important to them. Um, and try to stay true to that in, in the job market to the extent that they can. That's probably so, April uh, about the common mistakes that you see uh, patients or, or junior faculty um, uh, make. Um, first, they don't know what they want. They don't really, um, or they ended up in a place that they are not going to be comfortable in. That, that's number one. What other common mistakes do you know? Uh, can you can you name? Maybe underestimating how quickly the time will pass. Um, I've seen that a couple of times where um, the way we describe it is, you know, a fire underneath them, you know, hopefully the annual evaluations do that. And I'm, now I'm speaking of assistant professors, but if they get themselves in trouble, it's because they probably don't, um, I imagine they don't think that it's as, urgent as it really is, you know, from day one, they need to be going to conferences. They need to be marketing their research. They need to be sending their paper out to colleagues for comments. They need to be, you know, trying to work with people they know to set up brown bags or seminars, um, you know, get that paper presented as many times as you can. You know, what I've heard, is the rule of thumb is 10 presentations. And I think it's a pretty good rule of thumb, wherever it is, whether it's a seminar, a conference, a brown bag, um, get comments from colleagues, you know, you just send it out via email, get those comments, get the paper vetted so you can be ready to submit it to journals. Cause the, the journal process is really long and mm -hmm. arduous and you, you have to get used to a lot of rejections. Those of us that have been, you know, in the, in the field for a decade or more. Um, one of my mentors actually told me once he could wallpaper his wall with rejections and he's <laughs> a really successful guy. So that that's why I'm, I remember it because it struck me. I was like, really? Yeah, you, ha you have to get thick skin. 
in a hurry. <laughs> Who was your advisor? Well, this was a mentor. It was not my advisor, but it, is that why you're asking yeah. the person? That was Doug Cumming. Oh, okay. So, yeah, I mean, I that was struck me because he's, oh my gosh, I don't even know how many publications he has, but very successful guy. And I was like, really? Oh, yeah, we all yeah. get up. Didn't so, you write the book on how to publish, how to write? These- <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so, Maybe the book was built on the rejections, you know? What's the best advice you received when you were going through the program? They really made a huge difference in your life. Um, and it can be about anything, really. Wow, that's a tough one. Um, I do remember this was early on. Uh, there was someone that told me that getting tenure is like rushing for a sorority or a fraternity. <laughs> um, in that things were really squishy, you know, they're, they're very subjective. And I think that was good advice because it, it brought to mind, it brought it to the forefront that you have to connect with these people and show them that you are going to be a good colleague, even after tenure, you know, and now that I'm on the other side of it, on P&T committees, I see what they mean now, because you know, there are sometimes, for most people, not so much, but for some people, there are questions, are they going to just sort of disappear after they get tenure, you know, and you want to know that they're going to contribute. And so you have to, you know, in my department, it meant going to lunch a lot of days. And that is during crunch time, right? I just finished saying that, it's, there's this urgency, you got to publish, you know, you got to get all this work done. At the same time, you have to show up, you have to have the FaceTime, you have to interact with the department chair and, you know, definitely know who your P&T committee members are and make sure you get to know them, make sure you let them know that you are there every day, you're working hard, you're, you know, sending your stuff out to conferences, to, you know, colleagues, you're, you're getting it done. You're, you're, mm-hmm. you're working hard. And that means a lot because it is in the end, it is squishy. You know, they, mm-hmm. I mean, at most universities, some universities probably do have some, you know, sort of um, hard standards and they have less flexibility, but most schools that I'm aware of, it's pretty squishy. They can put through people that they think would be good colleagues going forward. And, you know, alternatively, um, I know a situation where the person had the publications to get tenure, but they didn't get tenure because they never showed up to anything. So um, it goes, it cuts both ways. You know, there's lots of things that are important. So it's not just research. Thank you. Uh, April, for the sake of time, uh, what's the question that I should have asked you about heaven? Um, I think you're pretty thorough. <laughs> I, um, I don't know. I, I think it's just all to the extent that this is about the students. I think it's all about finding your bliss. It's all about finding an opportunity where you don't work. You know, you just, it's kind of like your hobby. Um, and I, I hope that everybody out there watching this finds that because it, it's very rewarding if you luck into that. Thank you. Uh, thank you for your time. This was uh, delightful. Thank you so much, April. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity.